Take your Bibles, if you will, and go to Zephaniah 1, but also to Zephaniah chapter 3. I know they're only not too far from each other, but let's, let's stand and, and honor the reading of the Word of God. Let's read these, these two passages here. You can look on the screen or look in your own copy here. But verse 14 of Zephaniah chapter 1, the Bible writes, Zephaniah wrote, The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hasteth greatly. Even the voice of the day of the Lord, the mighty man shall cry there bitterly. Then jump over to chapter 3. Look at verse 14. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 14. The Bible says, Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all the heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord hath taken away thy judgments. He hath cast out the enemy. The king of Israel, even the Lord, is in the midst of thee. Thou shalt not see evil anymore. In that day shall be, it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear thou not. And to Zion, let not thy hands be slack. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. Let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you this morning. We thank you so much for the cross. We thank you for the writings that we find here in the book of Zephaniah, these holy, inspired, inerrant writings. Lord, help us to learn from these things. Lord, we thank you for them. Lord, we do pray um, for the requests that were mentioned earlier. Uh, Lord, we pray for the traveling mercies. Um, uh, <laughs> For the family that's leaving tomorrow, Lord, and I pray, Lord, that you just put a blessing upon them. We do praise uh, for, the, uh, for the homeschool fellowship that's meeting here on Wednesdays, Lord. I pray you uh, bless them, and Lord, and just be an encouragement to them, Lord. And we thank you uh, most of all, Lord, for us uh, being able to be here, Lord. We thank you for that. We thank you for the, uh, the reading of your word, Lord. We ask you to bless it, bless us, help us to leave a little bit closer to you than we came. And Lord, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please, uh, please be seated. The great day of the Lord, the great day of the Lord. So we're, gonna, we're, we're not going to read the entire um, prophecy of Zephaniah, although it's only three chapters, so I'm kind of tempted, but um, we, won't, we won't do that. Um, but suffice it to say, if you were to read through all of this, you will see um, that the coming of the day of the Lord is mostly a message of doom. This book here, Zephaniah, is considered I don't like calling it the darkest book, but it talks about the doom and destruction of God's people and the, the doom and destruction that's bringing to this earth more than probably any other minor prophet, at least in the way he writes about it. So he wrote prophetically with great detail about the coming day, uh, the coming great day of the Lord, and we can cle- clearly see that this day, I mean, he spends... Almost all of chapter 1, almost all of chapter, D, uh, chapter 2, and about half of chapter 3 talking about the doom and destruction, the darkness of this great and dreadful day of the Lord. So it most definitely begins first with the day of reckoning. Look at um, chapter 1 there again. Look at verse number 2. Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 2. The Bible says, I will utterly consume all things from off the land. Some have said this is a... Sounds like Noah's flood. I will utterly consume all things from off the land. Verse 3, I will consume man and beast. I will consume the fowls of the heaven and the fishes of the sea and the stumbling blocks which the wicked with the wicked. And I will cut off man from off the land, saith the Lord. I will also, verse 4, stretch out mine hand upon Judah and upon all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will cut off the remnant of Baal from this place and the name of the Chimerams with the priest, 
and them that worship the host of heaven upon the housetops, and them that worship and, and that swear by the Lord, and that swear by Malcolm or, or Molech. And verse 6 says, And them that are turned back from the Lord, and those that have not sought the Lord, nor inquired for him. So first there is a day of reckoning. Look at verse 15 again of chapter 1. The day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble, distress, wasteness, desolation, darkness, gloominess, clouds, and thick darkness. This is not a good thing. This is a a scary, fearful thing here. On and on, Zephaniah writes about the devastation associated with the coming day of the Lord. And if again, if we were to read the entire prophecy, we would see that this day of reckoning is, as we just read, for creation in general, because all of creation groaneth for redemption, Paul writes about in the New Testament. So it's a day of reckoning for creation, but specifically to at least two different people groups here in Zephaniah. And if you didn't guess it by now, those two different people groups are the Jews and the rest of us, the Jews and the Gentiles. <clears throat> Look at verse 4 again. He begins, after, after the reckoning of the world, uh, in this writing here, verse 4 says, I will also stretch out my hand upon Judah and upon all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. <clears throat> now, in context, uh, and in correlation with the previous timeline that I, that I shared with you earlier, some of these prophecies here in Zephaniah were fulfilled indeed, at least in a beginning form, in part, uh, when Babylon conquered Jerusalem in 586 or 87, somewhere around there. So therefore, some of uh, the prophecies have both a near and far-term fulfillment. We've, we've seen that already in Sunday school. You study the Bible, you see many of these things that are, are, mean something now and they mean something else in the future or a further explanation of what's been written. <clears throat> so some of them have a near and a far-term fulfillment. Some of them have only a future fulfillment. And I'd like to say this morning that the destruction of Jerusalem is both. It has a near-term fulfillment and a far-term fulfillment. So if you, if you were to study all the prophecies specifically about the destruction of Judah, the nation of, uh, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, those prophecies are multifaceted uh, with several prophetic installments, if you will, uh, concluding with a final judgment in the, in the day of the Lord. And the book of Revelation ends with a new Jerusalem coming down. So that tells you that the old is completely gone, completely gone. But of all the reasons, I was, when I was reading through the book of Zephaniah, it's not that long. You can, you can probably read it with, in one sitting, 15 minutes maybe. So you can read it and read it and read it and read it and read it. And of all the reasons here in chapter 1 for a divine reckoning uh, of the word, of the world, uh, and specifically to those at Judah, there's, there are some reasons that jumped out at me more than the other ones. And some reasons that I think are the most easy, easily applicable to our day and age. And I think they're found right there in verse number 5 and 6. Look at 5 and 6 again. He's going to bring, stretch out his hand against those that worship the host of heaven upon the housetops. And by the way, the stumbling blocks up there in verse number 3 is a reference to the host of heaven, the stars, the moons, and all these things that distract from God in, in, mind, in man's mind. But he will bring a reckoning to them that worship the host of heaven upon the housetops, and them that worship and swear by the Lord, and that swear by Malcolm, and them that are turned back from the Lord, and those that have not sought the Lord, nor inquired of him. So remember this first chapter here, 
It's recording. Zephaniah is focusing on a day of reckoning for God's people. This is God's people or those who profess to be God's people. So I want to give you four things from this, uh, this first point. I, I think we might be here a little long, but I'm going to try my best to be uh, done at a certain time without rushing the Lord. Um, but number one, we have a day of reckoning. And under that, we have a day of reckoning for idol worshipers. Very clear uh, there in verse number four. Um, I will cut off the remnant of Baal from his place um, and the name of the Chimerims with the priest. So God promises, first of all, to cut off the remnant of Baal and the name of the priest, those priests who led the children of Israel away and the worship of those idols. And, and many times I think when we see that God's judging the idols, we're like, oh, I'm good. I don't worship idols. Could this be one? I mean, if we were to measure our time compared on this, compared to this, what would God say is our idol? What would God say is most important? Now, I'm not, you could have your Bible on this, so you can do whatever you want on there. I just turned my camera on and probably took a picture of myself. But, um, but we need to be careful about this, this reckoning for idol worshipers. We are not immune. As a matter of fact, when we only lead our lives according to us, we are naturally prone to worship things other than God. Because with God... Uh, brings accountability. So there's a day of reckoning for the idol worshipers here in God's people in Zephaniah. Then look at uh, number two very clearly there, uh, a day of reckoning for host of heaven worshipers, for host of heaven worshipers. You're probably thinking, what in the world is this, right? So God will bring judgment on them who worship the host of heaven. This is not talking about God. He is the Lord of hosts. Uh, the word host itself means a gathering, and most commentators use it as an as a understanding to mean an army. So God is the Lord of the army of angels, a host of heavenlies. God is the, the Lord of those things. But in this case, here God's going to judge them because they worshipped the host of heaven. They worshipped angels or, or false entities presenting themselves as gods. If you were to look at Deuteronomy chapter 32, you would see that God clearly states that Israel forsook God and they provoked him, Deuteronomy 32, they provoked him to jealousy with strange gods, with abominations provoked they him to anger, they sacrificed unto devils, God's people worshiping fallen angels. And God's judging him here, promising to bring judgment with Zephaniah here, a, promising, a promise of reckoning. And then we see there in verse number five, and them, by the way, if, as we're looking at these from idol worshipers, worshipers and host of heaven worshipers, I think if you're like me and my understanding here, you'll see that they're become more and more applicable to us. Look at verse five. And them that worship the host of heaven upon the housetops and them that worship and swear by the Lord and that swear by Malcolm. Notice Notice the break in the verse. We're going to look at a day of reckoning for half-hearted worshipers. Half-hearted worshipers. Notice again the break in the verse. In the first half, there are those who worship the host of heaven upon the housetops. And then there in the second half, there is a group of worshipers who swear by the Lord and Molech. They swear by the Lord and Malcolm. Molech is that Phoenician deity, the false deity of the Philistines and the Phoenicians and so forth. And a cursory search in the Bible would show that the worship of this God unfortunately included child sacrifice. 
He is often portrayed, some would argue that if it's, a, if it's a real picture or not, as a statue whose hands of bronze or, or some kind of metal would stick out here and they would heat up those hands and lay their children inside of those hands. This is the God of, the God of Molech. So in this text here, we can see that Jews here were playing both sides of the fence. They were going and worshiping the gods of those around them that Joshua and God told Joshua not to do, to drive them out. And then they were also worshiping God. So I think we can easily conclude that they appeared to be all in on the Sabbath day, if you will, but gave themselves away the rest of the week. Could there be an application for us? I think there could be. The church at Philadelphia, in the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verse 9, God also warned those who claim to be Jews, but are really were the synagogue of Satan. One commentator put it this way. If the devil has half your heart, he's got all of it. If the Lord has half your heart, he has none of it. I think what Zephaniah is trying to get to and what the, the, the Jews end up at the end of this chapter, we see that they will worship God with all their heart. God doesn't want 95% of our heart, 85, 55, whatever, all of it. Matter of fact, I think you can even make an argument that true worship only comes with a, a full heart, a whole heart. So there will be a day of reckoning for these half-hearted worshipers. And then look at verse number 6. A day of reckoning for them that are turned back from the Lord and those that have not sought the Lord nor inquired of Him. A day of reckoning for backsliders. Now, this could be a little scary here, I think, but I think very clear here we see that God will bring judgment on them who are turned back from the Lord and those who have not sought the Lord nor inquired of Him. Now, this could be a reference to true believers who have decided not to follow God anymore. Or it could be a reference to those who have never decided to follow God, those who have a, a God-shaped hole, if you will, and never chose to fill that with God. So either way, it's, it's, a, it's a sobering warning here that God says the day of reckoning is coming. And before we move on, I want to point out that while some of what is foretold here in Zephaniah, again, has already come to pass, partially if not fully, but some of it has not. I know I've already said that, but I want you to hear this verse. 2 Peter chapter 3 uh, talks also about the day of the Lord. So with these things in, in, in mind, this day of reckoning, this, this warning for all four of these peoples, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, Peter writes this, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. I've preached a passage from that before. I like that where it says, and the works that are therein uh, shall be burned up. And I like looking at that. You know, we always look at all the things I've done. Look at this. Look at my works, the good, bad, or indifferent, whatever. Well, when we're standing before God, all those works go on away. They're all burned up. We have nothing to show, only what we've done for the Lord. But also in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And in Revelation again, chapter 20, verse 12, the apostle John wrote this. I hope you're still with me this morning. John wrote this, that he saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life and the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. So I want to say this. There is a day of the Lord that is still on our horizon. 
the day of the Lord is still forward from us. And with it comes a day of reckoning. Listen, every one of us are going to stand before God. We're going to stand before the only just judge. Now, we can stand alone before the world's judge as idol worshipers, as host of heaven worshipers, as half-hearted worshipers, or as backslidden worshipers. Or we can stand before him as forgiven with Christ at our side. John calls him an advocate or a lawyer, if you will, whose father is the judge. So we can stand there with all those things against us or with Christ at our side, whose blood was washed away our sins through his vicarious sacrifice on the cross. We, I, I, I motivate you, I encourage you to choose Christ. And as we just read, there will be, there's going to be two books opened at this final judgment, one of, one of life and one of works. All of us will be in the latter. Only by faith can we be in the former. Make sure you're in the first one. Make sure you're in the book of life. And it only comes through faith in Jesus Christ, not by works. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Titus 3, 5 says, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost, which He shed on us abundantly, through Jesus Christ our Savior. Friends, a day of reckoning and the day of the Lord is indeed coming. But when you know the Ancient of Days, it's so much different. When you know the Lord of that day, when you know the, and we talk about the second coming of Christ, but when you know personally the Christ of the second coming, it's a world of difference. It's a world of difference. And Zephaniah, I believe, gets to this difference as we read on. For those who are truly gods, Jew or Gentile, chapter 2, um, continues with this day of reckoning, if you will, for the world around Jerusalem. So he starts with Jerusalem, he starts with Judah, and then he starts looking at the world around Jerusalem. And if you were to study through chapter 2, he talks about the coastal cities to the west. He talks about Ethiopia to the south, to Moab and Assyria, to, to all those directions around him. If you connected all those, those cities and those countries, there would be a big circle all around Jerusalem. It's like God is calling the whole world out. History tells us that these nations have been judged, as Zephaniah wrote about, in some form, especially Judah and Nineveh, which we've already talked about here in the last few months. But much of this awaits a future fulfillment. In Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 8, God says that my determination is to gather the nations. Look at verse 8 of chapter 3. My determination is to gather the nations that I may assemble the kingdoms to pour upon them mine indignation, even all my fierce anger. And in Zechariah, not Zephaniah, but Zechariah, chapter 14, verses 1 and 2, the Bible says, Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee, for I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. So he's gathering them together so that he can pour out his indignation to punish them for rejecting his son. We know that battle as the, the battle of Armageddon. But our focus this morning is going to shift from this day of reckoning to a day of restoration, to a day of restoration. Go back to chapter 2 of Zeph Zephaniah, chapter 2, and look at verse number 3. Seek ye the Lord. Seek ye the Lord. All ye meek of the earth which have wrought this judgment, seek righteousness, seek meekness. 
it may be ye shall be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. So we'll look at a day of restoration. I believe that this chapter starts, it starts to give us a hint of the positive side of the Lord's return. The side that you and I should be more focused on because we are on and in the Lord. And I believe one of the reasons he began with such darkness, Zephaniah, in, in his writing of this book, one of the reasons he, he began writing with such destruction was to purposely contrast the darkness with the light. To purposely contrast the darkness of those who are without God to the light of those who are in the family of God. So he began with a clear judgment of God so that we could clearly see the mercy of God. And I think if we were, all, if we were Jews and we were living in that time early in the reign of Josiah, if you will, on the heels of Manasseh's wicked 55-year reign and his son's two-year reign, so almost 60 years of just straight pure wickedness, and you read this, Josiah is a king. Good things are happening, but he's eight, right? I mean, how much hope will we have in an eight-year-old president? All right? So there's, I mean, you, and you read this, and you read the first chapter of this, and I'm like, wow, there's, there's a lot coming. And this is, and you don't get any kind of hope until you get to verse 3 of chapter 2, seek ye the Lord. Before that, it's bam, 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 bam. So he began with that clear judgment so we can get maybe some relief and see the mercy of God. So as a Jew and living in that time, you would be looking for mercy from God. Again, especially after reading that first chapter. Seek ye the Lord. Seek his righteousness. Seek meekness. It may be ye shall be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. Interestingly enough, Zephaniah's name means the Lord hides. The Lord hides. Or the Lord protects, maybe. And then continuing on down, look at verse 11 of chapter 2. God's mercy is, we get another glimpse of God's mercy there in verse 11. He says, The Lord will be terrible unto them, for he will famish all the gods, little g, of the earth, and men shall worship him, shall worship God, every one from his place, even all the isles of the heathen. So after reading that first chapter and a half, you're like, this is crazy. This is, this is not good for us. And then we see here that, wait a minute, we're going to worship God one day. And I think this is most definitely a reference to Jesus Christ. It's most definitely a reference to our worship of Him from wherever we are. You know, one of the things that in the, in the, in the first century, uh, the, and, and, and into the second century, that the authorities wanted, they considered Christians atheists because we didn't have to have a synagogue. We, just, we could go worship anywhere. We worshiped to the God that was invisible to them, and to them, it was, He was invisible. So they, some groups considered early Christians atheists because we can worship God anywhere we are. We can worship anywhere. Uh, John chapter 4, verse 21, Jesus tells the woman at the well, He says, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when you shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. And in verse 24, Jesus said, God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. We can do that from anywhere. We come together collectively as a church because Christ died for the church. This is something that God put together. But if this is the only place that you're worshiping, we're missing something. When we read verse 8 here back in chapter 3, go to that verse again. Therefore, chapter 3 of Zephaniah, therefore wait ye upon me. I said again, I don't think we read it yet. But therefore wait ye upon me, saith the Lord, until the day that I rise up to the prey. 
that I may assemble the kingdoms to pour upon them mine indignation, even all my fierce anger, for all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. He's talking about them coming around Israel again. And when we read that verse in light of the day of the Lord that he's writing in, and in light of what Zechariah wrote about, we talked about a while ago, the gathering of all the nations, verse 9 then, speaks of restoration. Look at verse 9. For then will I turn to the people a pure language, that they may all call upon the name of the Lord to serve him with one consent. I like that verse. For then when I then will I turn to the people a pure language, that they may call all call upon the name of the Lord to serve him with one consent. You know, in our Sunday school class, we've been talking about the end times. Uh, one of the things we've talked about over the last month or so is that God will bring this creation back close to a pre-fall state, a pre-flood state, if you will, for his 1,000-year reign. We get to see what Adam saw, or maybe what um, Seth and, and, and so forth, Abraham, the land that he lived in. We get to see some of that, the earth like that. And if I understand this verse here correctly, one attribute that will be restored to humanity is a pure language. This is possibly the reversal of the Tower of Babel, possibly a reversal of the confusion of languages. One commentator said that Pentecost was a partial fulfillment of this prophecy here in Zephaniah. At any rate, the primary purpose for this language here, this new language, what's the primary purpose? We see it right there in verse 9. I will turn to the people a pure language. Why? So that they can all call upon the name of the Lord and to serve Him with one consent. You know, this is the ultimate reason for our ability even today to communicate. God's given us the ability to communicate, not so much that we can communicate with each other, although that's part of it, but ultimately and primary so we can communicate to Him and to worship Him so that we can call upon the name of the Lord. My dogs cannot call upon the name of the Lord. I can call upon the name of the Lord. And you can call upon the name of the Lord. And you can serve Him with one consent. Again, this our communication the ultimate reason for our communication and the highest form of our communication is talking to God and worshiping God. For God's people, the great day of the Lord here will indeed be a great day of restoration. We will worship Him like we've never worshiped Him before in pure truth, in pure spirit, and in a pure speech. The Bible talks about at the end of, I think it's, I think it's Zechariah, that during the millennials, uh, millennial, millennial, <laughs> during the millennial kingdom, um, the Jews would go in and out. Those God's people would go in and out of the temple, and those nations would know very much that the Jews were God's people. And it won't be like the Jews of yesteryear, yep, I'm God's people, I'm chosen. It would be like they know that they're God's people and they want to help the world. They want to fulfill Genesis chapter 12 when it talks about that Abraham and God's and his seed will be a blessing. And in the millennial time, the Bible talks about 10 Gentiles will grab a hold of one Jew and say, take me to God, because I know that you know God. 10 Gentiles. 10 Gentiles. It's amazing what God has planned for God's people. But not only can we look forward in this text here to a day of restoration, but also to a day of removal. A day of removal. Go to chapter 3 again. I think you're already there. Look at verse 10. Actually, let's read it with verse 9 again. Verse 9 says, For then will I turn to the people a pure language, 
that they may all call upon the name of the Lord to serve him with one consent. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my suppliants, even the daughter of my dispersed, shall bring mine offering. In that day shalt thou not be ashamed for all thy doings, wherein thou hast transgressed against me. For then I will take away out of the midst of thee them that rejoice in thy pride, and thou shalt no more be haughty because of my holy mountain. Verse 12, I will also leave in the midst of thee an afflicted and poor people, and they shall trust in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel shall not do iniquity, nor speak lies. Neither shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth, for they shall feed and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. None shall make them afraid. We see a, a removal of sin from God's people. Zephaniah wrote about a time that is ultimately still future. I mean, have you met a Jew? I mean, if you met me, I'm not trying to pick on the Jews here this morning, but we all lie. We all not. This, 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 this doesn't describe any of us today. We all have iniquity. So Zephaniah wrote about a time that is ultimately still future, a time where God's people, in this case the remnant of Israel, are removed from sin. In his writings, Zephaniah skipped right over the church age, I believe, to a time where the remnant of Israel lived up to their calling. They, they lived up to their calling of God's people. And with the revelation known to us in the New Testament, we know, without a doubt, because we know us, we know that a Jew or any other human, for that matter, could never achieve such a status as iniquity-free. How do we get that? There's only one way we get to be sin-free. Jesus Christ, the cross. So the cross is in here. We'll get to verse 15 again here later, but for a moment I want you to look at it. We'll, we'll, we'll look at it more, but look at it right now <laughs> at first. Notice what's different about Israel. The king of Israel, even the Lord, is in the midst of thee, Thou shalt not see evil anymore. God is in the midst of them. Friends, this, again, is the millennial reign of Christ after the battle of Armageddon when Jesus, as the root and offspring of David, reigns on the earthly throne of David from Jerusalem. The world will be at peace. There will be some in the world who sin, but not the nation of Israel and not God's church. And we'll get into all that at a different time here. But there's going to be a separation, if you will, and the Jews are going to be removed from this. The world's going to be at peace. Jerusalem will be that ruling city with Jesus as our earthly ruler. But I want to give you some of the attributes here that I think can apply to us as a teaching mechanism, if you will. Uh, some of these attributes of God's people during this time and how we can look forward to that and how they can be an encouragement to us. In Zechariah, again, chapter 8, verse 23, the Bible states that in those times... Again, I already mentioned this, but people from all nations are going to cling to Jews saying, we have heard that God is with you. We're looking forward to a time when the Jews will have a level of prestige they have never had. And that's going to be then. But let's look at some, some attributes here. Look at verse number 11. The Bible says, In that day shalt thou not be ashamed for all thy doings, wherein thou hast transgressed against me, for then I will take away out of the midst of thee them that rejoice in thy pride. So number one, we see that they are forgiven. 
I would even say, I like putting this word in there, they are manifestly forgiven. They know that they're forgiven. They shall not be ashamed. I mean, how many of us, we commit a sin, we get forgiveness from the person we offended and ultimately from God, but there's still something going on in here, right? There's some shame going on. I, there's shame of sins from years ago. It's just still there. We know it's forgiven. We know it's gone. We know it's under the blood. But in this, they will not be ashamed. The Jews will not be ashamed. They will be manifestly forgiven. forgiven. Now, God didn't undo their sin, if you will, but it is as he did undo their sin. I like the, the phrase justified, just if I'd never sinned. They were justified. He took away their shame. They were forgiven, and they knew they were forgiven more than they ever have. Their sin, along with the, the shame of sin, was washed in the blood. But I want to say that their sins were not only forgiven, just to make this clear, not only forgiven and forgotten by God, but also by themselves. And I want to say that we can do some forgiving but you got to also, and that's not good English, you got to also do some forget, forgetting. That's where a victorious life comes in. Now, I, I've given examples before. You probably have your own examples here. You can, you can be hurt by somebody, and maybe, maybe you won't um, do that something for that somebody until they earn their trust again. But if your view of them has changed because of that action they've done to you, then you've not probably even forgiven them and most definitely not for God. We are to forgive and forget and learn from our mistakes. Don't get me wrong. But these sins here for the Jews, they were forgiven by God. They knew they were forgiven. They didn't even think about them anymore. And I would say today even that gives us the ability for victorious living. We cannot live in shame. We cannot live, man, I'm sorry, Lord, I did that yesterday. I'm sorry I didn't read my Bible. Why do I keep messing up? Why do I keep doing that? Let those things go. Give them to God and live manifestly forgiven. He already knows you're forgiven. We can know that we are also forgiven. And then look also at the end of verse 11. I will take away out of the midst of thee them that rejoice in thy pride, and thou shalt no more be haughty or high and lifted up, if you will, because of my holy mountain. They were free. They were, again, manifestly free. For one, they were free from those in their midst who didn't follow God. We see very clearly that God removed those people that didn't want to follow Him. I mean, speaking of those who can enter the New Jerusalem, John wrote again in Revelation 21, there will in no wise enter into, into the Jerusalem anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. These are the forgiven so the removal of sin in the form of pride in this verse, look at that. They were haughty because of my holy mountain. They were, look at me, I'm high and lifted up because God's temple is among our people. God said, it's going away. It's not going to happen anymore. The, the removal of sin in a form of pride left the remnant, remnant free of arrogance based on the fact that they were chosen of God. You know, there would be no more haughtiness in the heart of God's people. No more looking down on other people as if they were not as good or if we were better because we're forgiven and they're not. All of that was gone. And in its place, a people who knew that they needed redemption, 
a people who never lost sight of the cross, who never lost sight of God, who never lost sight of the fact that their sins were forgiven. They were not even ashamed of those sins anymore. And at the same time, they were not lifted up high and mighty in their own minds because they realized that they had nothing to do with the removal of that sin. And I think when all of that is true, they are free to worship God greater than they ever could worship Him before. Free to worship, free to serve, free to trust, and they knew it. Their confidence was not based in self, but in, but in the Savior, but in God who paid that debt. We can be there. Maybe not at that extent that they're at now, but we are free. We are not under the bondage of sin today. We are free to serve Him, free to worship, free to trust. And then look at verse number 13. The Bible says, The remnant of Israel shall not do iniquity, nor speak lies, neither shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth, for they shall feed and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Not only were they forgiven, they were free, but they were faithful. They were faithful. The removal of sin was manifested in their actions. Get this now. Their, you've probably heard me say this quite often. If you've been here more than a couple of months, I guess. Their behavior followed their belief. Their behavior followed their belief. So I have a, I have a belief. I think I used this uh, a couple of days ago, and I haven't used it in here for a while, but we have a bus stop down the road here. Y'all have ever heard me say this a hundred times every night? There's a bus stop right down the road here. And you go down to that bus stop, and on that bus stop it says the bus stops here at noon, right? So I'm sitting here at 11.30, 11.45. If I believe that bus stop says it's true, that, and we all know buses are never late in Germany, so I have to go over there because I believe what the bus thing says. My belief affected my behavior, my behavior, my actions. I got up and I went to the bus. So for the Jews, and most definitely for us, our behavior should be modified by our belief. It should be manifested by our belief. Our, our practice should reflect our position. If we are in Christ, our practice will reflect our position in Christ. And the Jews in this, pa- in this passage here, they got it. They knew what was going on here. They were, there was no more iniquity in them, and they were faithful. They chose to be faithful. No more iniquity. No more lies, no more deceit, no more fear, only faith. It's the ultimate removal of anything sinful in the heart and mind of man. Right here in Zephaniah chapter 3. And while the day of the Lord is yet to come for us, and the ultimate manifestation of these attributes is also yet to come. If you were to take from this time, this year right now, September 4th, 2022, and we were to look back to creation, and look across all those periods of time, from, from Noah's time to Abraham's time to, to Moses to, to Ezekiel and all those times. We look at all those ages. Of all those ages, I think Christians should manifest these attributes the most. Why? Because we know so much more. We have the complete revelation of the Word of God because of the cross of Christ. His glorious resurrection has already occurred. We have been forgiven and we've, we can see the payment in the Word. We can have the payment in our hearts. Christ has already risen from the dead. All of our sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. 
They're all under the blood. And we can, again, read about it, about the fulfillment of thousands, literally thousands of prophecies were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The, the saints of the Old Testament, they didn't see that. Hebrews actually even talks about how they yearned to see what we have seen. But they died not seeing their faith come to light. We've seen it all so far. And of all the ages, we ought to live out these attributes greater than anybody before us. Every true Christian knows that we deserve hell. There's no room for arrogance in our life. There's no room for haughtiness. And so with the blessed, blessed gift of the Holy Spirit on us and within us, we are to live out our faith without fear. Iniquity should never define the people of God. Dishonesty and deceit should be as foreign to us as idolatry and witchcraft. And while we have not been ultimately, ultimately removed from the presence of sin, we have been removed from the ultimate penalty of sin, which leads us to our, our last thought this morning. And we won't be much here this morning, much longer here. Look at verse 14 of chapter 3. The Bible says, Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all the heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord hath taken away thy judgments. He hath cast out thine enemy. The king of Israel, even the Lord, is in the midst of thee. Thou shalt not see evil anymore. In, the day, in that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear thou not, and to Zion let not thy hands be slack. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. There is, our day of the Lord will include a day of rejoicing. Yes, it will be a day of reckoning. Yes, it will be a day of restoration and removal. But I can say, I think correctly here, above all, a day of rejoicing. I mean, could there ever be a greater reason to rejoice that God has fully redeemed his people? What a day it will be when Jesus is in the midst of his people upon the throne of David in the flesh. Look at verse 14. O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all the heart, O daughter of Jerusalem, not with half a heart, but with all the heart, the whole heart. I don't know if any of our hymns today will rise to the challenge of pure worship from a pure heart through a pure language, but we will worship God in spirit and in truth. And as we come to a close this morning, I'd like to point out one more marvelous truth from this text and that we will not be the only ones singing. Look at verse 17 again. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. God rejoicing over God's people. He will rest in his love. And get this last one. The Lord thy God, Yahweh, will joy over thee with singing. Jesus singing over us. It is certainly hard to fathom, but as happy and joyous as we will be in the presence of God, our rejoicing and our singing will not match that of our Savior's, whose joy and rejoicing and singing is because of us. What a love, what a Savior who's paid it all, who's done it all. He's, he, I mean, he, he put it all together, and his joy 
will be greater than ours because he loves us more than we can ever love him. And because of that great joy of our Savior, there is a wonderful, a wonderful, marvelous bright side to the coming great day of the Lord. And I believe this part of the reason, this is part of the reason that John wrote this near the end of God's revelation to him. He says this, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him that heareth say, Come. And let him that is a thirst, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. You see, friends, the great day of the Lord is coming. Are you ready?